0: For all your fantasy football needs, check out the Ringer Fantasy Football Show with me, Danny Kelly, along with Danny Heifetz and Craig Horlbeck. That's the Ringer Fantasy Football Show on Spotify
1: or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Town is brought to you by FX's Feud, Capote vs. the Swans. The second installment in Ryan Murphy's Feud anthology tells the story of acclaimed writer Truman Capote, once a confidant to society's most elite women, whom he nicknamed the Swans. Starring Naomi Watts, Diane Lane, Chloe Sevigny, Calista Flockhart, Demi Moore, Molly Ringwald, and Tom Hollander. For your Emmy consideration, visit fxnetworks.com slash FYC. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. It is Thursday, September 7th. This is always a fun time of the year because the fall film festivals are in full swing. A lot of the Oscar movies are being unveiled or at least the movies that hope to be Oscar movies. I will admit it's kind of a fun parlor game to cross big movies off the list of contenders when they fall flat at these festivals. I didn't go to Venice or Telluride this year, but Tuesday night I bailed on my fantasy football draft to go to the DGA Theater to see Poor Things, the new Emma Stone sci-fi sex dramedy that was a big hit at both those festivals. I can confirm it's definitely an Oscar contender. But this year, like everything in Hollywood, things are not normal. Emma Stone wasn't at that DGA screening, and movie stars are mostly absent from the movie festivals, thanks to the strikes, of course. That's had a trickle-down effect so far, less media attention, fewer industry people attending, and at least at Venice and Telluride, it feels like less buzz for the movies overall. It'll be interesting to see what happens with the Toronto International Film Festival, which opens tonight with The Boy and the Heron from Japanese animation legend Hayao Miyazaki, notably a film without big Hollywood stars. TIFF has always been my favorite of the festivals. It's a huge event and a great city, and the movies are a bit more commercial and crowd-pleasing than most festival fair. Good mix of industry and regular people launches a lot of the Oscar picks too, although I'm sad that the Wayne Gretzky restaurant closed during COVID. The one constant at TIFF is that there's always been a lot of big stars at the premieres and parties, except this year, or maybe there will be. It's kind of up in the air, who knows? It's confusing and in flux with all the strike, interim agreements, the exceptions for stars who are also filmmakers and more. So I asked Cameron Bailey to come on the show to talk about it all. In addition to being a very nice guy, Cameron is the longtime CEO of TIFF and he's been with the festival for more than 30 years. He managed it through COVID and now this odd curveball of the strikes. So today is how to throw a star-studded film festival when the stars are on strike. From The Ringer and Puck, I'm Matt Bellany and this is The Town. All right, we are here with Cameron Bailey, who is the longtime CEO of the Toronto International Film Festival. Welcome, Cameron. Thanks
0: so much for having
1: me. All right, so let's get right into this. I mean, this TIFF will look different than previous TIFFs. I did not go to the 2021 festival, um, which obviously looked very different from COVID, but you were getting out of that, and now we've got these strikes to deal with. How... Are you, as the head of one of the main film festivals, reacting to the strike? And what will the festival, how will the festival look different this year? You know,
0: I think our reaction really started in 2020. In March of 2020, when we shut down, we knew that September of 2020 would be COVID-affected. We began a series of protocols and just ways that we deal with, you know, a big cataclysmic shift in terms of what we can expect. We put those same protocols in place uh, just a few weeks ago when we knew that the SAG after strike uh, was on. At first, we didn't know if it would continue, but it it then became clear that it would through at least the fall. And uh, essentially, it's mostly about information and communication. When something like this happens... You want to get the best information you can that's as accurate and timely as possible, and you need to get it out to a bunch
1: of people. So everybody was asking us, is the festival still on? Of course it's still on. Right. It's very different from COVID. I mean, you may have the yeah. COVID protocols, but it's very different. It's, I mean, it's not like you can't show movies or you have to be afraid to show movies. It's just the celebrities won't be there.
0: Yeah. But, you know, for a festival where there are usually many, many celebrities coming, that affects, you know, what media are thinking about in terms sure. of, you know, are yeah. they attending and at what numbers? That affects some of our corporate partners who are very much focused on the talent that's attending. And that's a big part of what they do. We're also just part of an ecosystem here in Toronto where there's hotels and bars and restaurants and event spaces that are also looking for um, that talent attendance. So it became something where, you know, it didn't affect the lineup in the end, but we had to figure that out at first. And then we had to figure out, okay, what does it mean to to know who is coming and how? So I, I got to learn a a lot, more than I ever thought I would, about uh, interim agreements, <laughs> and all of the details of the uh, the labor dispute. And, and that gave us a lot of clarity once we figured it out.
1: Just to be clear, the rules for SAG-AFTRA are that the membership cannot promote a movie that is produced or released by a struck company. So if your movie is released by Netflix, by Searchlight, by any of those big companies, you are not supposed to attend the festival to promote it. The interim agreements are separately negotiated with SAG. There's about 500 of them, I believe, now. Um, they've got a backlog of about 1,000 movies that want them. And if you have an interim agreement, companies like a twenty-four independently financed movies. You can get one of those, and your stars can promote. So, how many of those are for Toronto movies, for TIFF movies? Do you think there will be certain stars, and are you waiting by your email every day to see whether a new movie gets an interim an interim agreement? Well, so
0: in addition to what you outlined, there are some. Other wrinkles to how things okay. will work as well. So documentaries, for instance, are in a different category. Even if they're from an AMPTP company, we're closing our festival this year with Sly, which is the new Sylvester Stallone documentary. That's in a different category because he's not acting in the film. So he is. So he actually, can come. He can come. He can promote uh, that that film in that capacity as the subject of a subject. Even
1: though that film is being released
0: by Netflix. That's right, yeah. Wow. Uh, and then that's true also for the music docs. We have, regardless of what companies are coming from, they can also promote. Um, so we've got the Talking Heads documentary from A24. I'm right. definitely going to that one. That's going to be great. It's going to be amazing. Uh, in IMAX, we have the uh, the Paul Simon documentary, which is great in Restless Dreams. We have a, the Lil Nas X documentary. So that, that's a separate c- category as well. And then for the independent films, especially the ones that are made in the U.S., Yes, the interim agreements are crucial, but we know that a lot of films that we have in our lineup already have them and have just in the last, I'd say, week or or a bit more than that, secured, in some cases, announced that they have interim agreements. So that's the Sean Penn, Dakota Johnson movie, Daddy-O, for instance, which we will have at the festival uh, with Sean and Dakota uh, presenting that. Ethan Hawke's movie, Wildcat, where he directed his daughter, Maya Hawke. That'll be here. Viggo Mortensen is directed and uh, co-stars in a film called The Dead Don't Hurt. His co-star, Vicky Creeps, uh, who is amazing,
1: one of my favorite uh, actors. Uh, They'll be here for that as well. So I noticed that in the lineup. You have a lot of films directed by actor directors was that a conscious decision on your part knowing that the strike might take out actors but they could attend as filmmakers you know i wish i could say that we were that brilliant (laughs) to have anticipated the strike when we were landing these films but no I think,
0: and this is just my speculation, but I think that these films with so many prominent actors uh, directing as well this year are more a product of the pandemic, of right. the shutdowns that happened then, when people had the opportunity to pull some passion projects off the shelf and really um, move forward with them. So we've got, in addition to Vigo and uh, Ethan, Patricia Arquette has directed a movie called Gonzo Girl. Uh, Michael Keaton has uh, Knox Goes Away. Um, we've Chris got, Pine, Anna Kendrick. Chris Pine, Anna Kendrick, yeah. Anna Kendrick exactly, as well. So a lot of them as well and that it helps because they can certainly come as directors as well everyone we've talked to and their reps people who are members of SAG-AFTRA they said they they, they want to respect the guidelines they, they don't want to cross anything that SAG-AFTRA has, has outlined as, as what are the guidelines for just participating in a festival um, during a strike. And in fact, I've been able to speak with Duncan Crabtree Ireland himself, the lead negotiator for SAG-AFTRA, and he is very encouraging of SAG-AFTRA members within those guidelines, with interim agreements to attend and to promote
1: their films. They think it adds pressure to the struck companies when these stars are out there promoting stuff that is not distributed by the struck companies or is not covered by the agreement. I think, yeah, from their perspective, it absolutely
0: would. I think the important thing to remember, though, is that these are truly interim agreements, meaning that when there's a settlement, they morph into whatever uh, it the MPTP and SAG-AFTRA settle at, right? So that's important for anybody who's applying for an interim agreement. And in fact, um, Duncan has said that he's interested in coming to the festival himself and joining with the, the uh, members of SAG-AFTRA who are here. So I'm sure that you'll hear some of them
1: speaking out at the festival in terms of their Oh, are they going to do a demonstration or something? No, I don't think there's a
0: demonstration, but I think you'll see individuals.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, we've seen it already at Venice. Like Damien Chazelle, the lead juror at Venice, he had a WGA shirt. Um, You know, some of these members, though, they're not attending the film festivals, even if they're allowed to. Like, Bradley Cooper didn't go to Venice for Maestro, because in addition to being the director, he's also the star. And you didn't feel like it was appropriate. Have you had conversations with some of these dual multi-hyphenates about whether they are comfortable coming?
0: Yes. And I would say that even with the very clear encouragement from SAG and the instrument of an interim agreement, people still have to make personal choices about how comfortable they are. So we Mm -hmm. know that when we have, for instance, actor directors, for the most part, they will attend, but there are some who might not just be comfortable doing it. And that's fair. Everyone's got to make their own decision. They're thinking not just of the immediate moment, but how it might impact things in the future for them. And so in a lot of cases, you'll have people trying to figure out who else is going. What does it mean? What community am I a part of if I do go or if I don't go? Those kinds of things are part of the mix, too.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. You know, people might say, "Oh, why does this matter?" It's silly if a celebrity shows up, but it actually does matter because these movies depend on the festival attention to get people interested in them. And part of the mission statement of these big film festivals is to bring attention to films that might not otherwise get them. And that's a lot of the you know the the media follows the stars. And I know that that without those stars, it's tough to get the Attention, you want on these movies. That's why I was looking at the history of the People's Choice Award at TIFF. And this is a, one of the other reasons why I've always loved this festival is that there is not a jury that hands out, you know, Mount Olympus awards <laughs> to the movies. There is a People's Choice Award that is given via voting at the screenings during the festival. And if you look at the People's Choice Award winner, It's basically an automatic Best Picture nomination for the Oscars. (laughs) You've got to go back to 2011 when it didn't happen, when the Mm -hmm. winner of the People's Choice Award at, at TIFF did not get a Best Picture nomination. And there's been tons of winners, movies that people didn't necessarily think were automatic winners, like Green Book and then Nomadland and 12 Years a Slave. They got the People's Choice and then they ended up winning Best Picture. So my question for you is what is it about the taste of the people who attend this particular film festival that matches up so well with the taste of the Academy? Mm -hmm. Or is it just that it puts it on a trajectory that it becomes the movie that everyone wants to see and then it gets momentum out of this?
0: It's a great question. And we spent a lot of time thinking about it. We're incredibly fortunate that the Toronto audience has become so influential. And I think it's, it's two things. One, they're informed. And two, they're not
1: snobs, right? So (laughs) I was going to say that in in exactly those terms. You know, (laughs) Green Book is not a movie that would have been, I don't think, on the best picture radar until it won the People's Choice Award. And then it was. And it's not a pretentious movie, not like some of these. But I agree with you. So elaborate.
0: Yeah, so we're in a very diverse city. We get a lot of movies. We've got a lot of other film festivals in Toronto. So people have access to all kinds of movies from all over the world. They see the best of the best. They see the award winners from all the other festivals. But it's a very democratic response to movies at our festival as well. So um, you will have emotional reactions. It's not just about, you know, what is this the finest example of cinema that, you know, is inaccessible to a general audience? It's like, do I love this movie? And so people will say, I loved... Slumdog Millionaire, you know, I loved uh, 12 Years a Slave, as tough as it was, it was such an experience. And it's the emotion that I think that drives the People's Choice Award, which I think mirrors Oscar voters, because these are also informed people, but they're not just voting with their artistic spectacles on, they're voting with
1: their gut. Mm-hmm. And that's what happens in Toronto too. Yeah, I agree with that. I think it's interesting. Are you able to predict what movie's going to win? Do you try that at the beginning, say, I think this is going to win? You know, we might all have our favorites uh, or things that we think really resonate.
0: Sometimes I will get that same feeling in my own gut. I remember the year of Slumdog Millionaire, The Year of 12 Years a Slave. There's one or two others where it just felt like, oh my God, this movie
1: is is doing something new, but it's still striking a really powerful, popular chord. Slumdog was interesting. I was there that year. And I remember, because if if you remember, Slumdog Millionaire did not have a distribution deal when it played at Toronto. And I remember when that deal closed and we were writing about it for THR. And it was such a no-brainer. I mean, this is we've talked about this on the show. That is one of the biggest flubs in the history of movies, the fact that Warner Brothers had this movie and then let it go and Fox Searchlight bought it and it grows $400 million in one best picture. So that's an obvious crowd pleaser. You know, I was surprised that the Fablemans won last year because I didn't think that that was going to be that kind of all audience crowd pleaser, but it was. And I guess maybe Spielberg being there probably helped a little.
0: I think if you were in the room, especially the Princess of Wales at the premiere screening, there was just such love in the room for him. He'd never been to our festival before. And it's such a personal story. I mean, you know, people were just, they were weeping, they were laughing. It was just like he had everybody in the room that night.
1: All right, this is a little inside baseball, but I want to talk a little bit about the jockeying for exclusives at film festivals. Because in the festival world, securing those world premieres is kind of the currency. You want those first reviews to come from your screenings. You want the talent when they can attend. You want the kind of person to be at your festival who needs to see the film first in order to be knowledgeable about the, the landscape of films. Yet TIFF has seemed to be okay with films going to... Venice or Telluride, the other fall film festivals around this time, before they come to TIFF? Is that true currently? Or well, what is your current policy on, you know, if you don't play TIFF first, you don't get a prime spot? Like, where are you on, on that positioning?
0: You're right to use the word currency because a festival's reputation is its currency. That's Mm -hmm. how you establish, you know, your place in the festival firmament. So with us, because we want to establish, you know, the highest possible reputation that we can, that's partly through our programming or curation, first of all. But we know that we also come. Immediately on the heels of two other major festivals, the Telluride Festival and the Venice Film Festival. And then we're right ahead of the New York Film Festival and the London Film Festival, San Sebastian, and others. So we're in the the middle of that fall festival pack. Uh, we're not going to get every single film first uh, being the third in that group of festivals. So we're trying to be as realistic as possible. Movies like The Fablemans or Glass Onion last year will world premiere with us. We're very proud of those. Uh, but we're not looking to get the premiere of every single film. That's just not realistic. So uh we do have policies in place where if a film is coming from another festival and uh if it's looking to play in one of our bigger houses, then there are limitations on when in the festival it could play. Right. We're gonna prioritize the world premieres before we get to
1: those other ones. And you you do the world premieres that first weekend. That's right. Yeah. And how do the studios feel about that? You know, what is the jockeying like for the studios? Do they play off each other do they say we'll give you glass onion but it's got to be friday night princess of wales 8 (laughs) p.m i mean those kind of conversations absolutely do happen and (laughs) thankfully it's never like a categorical
0: categorical you got to do this it's more it's a negotiation often
1: well you're a you know you're not just a traffic cop you're an arbiter you if you don't want to nobody wants to piss you off that's right and
0: really the, the trickiest part of it is
1: not so much with any individual
0: studio or streamer or producer. It's more that we don't always see all the films we want to see in the order we need to see them. Do you know Mm -hmm. what I mean? So you might be waiting for a week or two or three weeks to see something that you think is going to be great, but you don't want to commit a spot to another film if they're pushing too early. So it's a matter of when can you see the films? Can you see them on your own timeline? And can you make the decisions when you need to, as opposed to being
1: urged to make them sooner than you want to? Yeah. People don't realize in the real world how much this stuff is choreographed. I mean, these studios strategize exactly which theater they want it to play in, what time they want it to play, the kinds of people that are in the audience for that first screening. Because in the festival environment, sometimes the critics see the movies before, but often they don't. And they're seeing it with that crowd and the buzz, so to speak, that comes from all the media and all the critics being in that first screening can often set the tone for the entire release of the movie. I mean, I make fun of these trade stories about the seven minute standing ovation for whatever movie that stuff's bullshit. It doesn't usually mean anything, but the mood from an initial screening at a film festival can absolutely change the trajectory of, How that film plays out and whether it becomes a hit or not. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, you have to remember what's at stake, right? Most movies are made for
0: a lot of money that does not belong to the filmmaker, right? there's investors (laughs) at stake. They want to get their money back. We've played movies that are unless they're a moron and they put their own money in. (laughs) Yeah, well, which you shouldn't be doing unless you you know you can afford it. Kevin Costner
1: is doing that, but he has enough money.
0: Yeah, exactly. So, you know, our movies sometimes are very small independent movies made for a few thousand dollars or, you know, multi-million dollar movies. We premiered The Martian, right? So there's a lot at stake for a movie like that, whether it's got a distributor and it needs to make half a billion dollars at the box office, which that one did. Or it's a film that is looking for a sale and they need the audience reaction in Toronto to really convince buyers
1: that there's a, a, a marketplace for that movie. But *The Martian* is a great example of of why I like TIFF because Fox took that movie to TIFF because it was good, and they knew it was good, and they figured, okay, this is a blockbuster style. They want it to to play, you know, with all audiences. But if we can get that premature of a TIFF audience award or positive buzz, it's going to play to a different audience. Same with *Glass Onion*. They knew, because I think Knives Out also premiered at TIFF. Am I right? That's right, right, it did, yeah. Yeah, Knives Out premiered at TIFF because that was good. And they knew that that was a commercial mainstream-style movie, but it was elevated, and taking it to TIFF right before the fall season turned that movie into something bigger.
0: Absolutely. And the other thing I'll say is that, relationships with filmmakers really matter. In the case of Glass Onion and Knives Out, we'd established a relationship with Ryan Johnson and Ram Bergman's producer over many years. We opened our festival with Looper one year, which I remember having to convince people was not going (laughs) to... Oh, so turn the festival in
1: a different direction. This no, means, I love that movie. I was there for that premiere. That was a, great, a, that was a great premiere.
0: Yeah, totally. Yeah, I think so too. So you know, you d- deliver enough great experiences like that for filmmakers and they begin to come back. And that's, I think every major festival depends on those relationships as well. And and we try to, to make sure that we deliver for filmmakers whenever we invite their films.
1: Yeah, and it's different than the Sundance or can experience. The hit rate, I call it the hit rate. When I go to the movie, at the festival whether i like it or not and the hit rate at toronto is just so much higher for the scripted sundance for the docs is amazing but uh for the scripted films tiff hit rate is so much better so what do you do during the festival i see you introducing films running around saying hello what's a typical day like for the guy who runs a, a giant film festival Starts early. Um, Often
0: there are media interviews to do. Uh, We're hosting a lot of people. We have um, sponsors, dignitary types. Yeah, but also filmmakers coming in from out of town that I want to mm-hmm. connect with, uh, people we've had at past festivals who don't have a film this year, but they're just here. We do all, all of our supporters as, as well. And then I am introducing films. I'm hosting Q&As in some cases. This year, I'm also doing some of our um, on stage in conversation with events. I'll be sitting down with Sylvester Stallone. Uh, I'll be sitting down with Pedro Almodovar for those as well. And that's just a part of it. So it's essentially just being...
1: A big old host is what most of the day is like so spielberg lands he's never been to the festival are you there to greet him at the hotel are you there to greet him at the first event how do you handle someone like spielberg typically in
0: that kind of case i'm I'm greeting steven spielberg um, backstage at his premiere screening we spend a little time getting to know each other sometimes there's uh, just other people to meet some photos that kind of stuff what did you ask him you know, I don't remember what I asked him, but I do remember that um, there was a really lovely moment. Darren Aronofsky had come to see The Fablemans and he was able to come backstage before the screening and to, to just have a moment with Steven Spielberg and to see the two of these guys together
1: making very different kind of movies. That was sort of cool. Did you say, what took you 40 freaking years to come to this damn festival? <laughs> <laughs> I did not say
0: that. I I might have told him that I grew up on his movies, but he must hear that all the time. I'm sure, yeah. Um, But what was interesting was that even Steven Spielberg, as successful as he's been, he has those same premiere night nerves. right? Everybody does. You make something, you put your heart and soul and a lot of money into it. Nobody outside of your circle has seen it yet. And he's that same guy as a
1: first-time filmmaker, which was kind of, in a way, beautiful to see. And he's not used to that setting. I mean he his movies don't typically need the festival attention, so he that's the reason why he has probably never been there is because that's not the strategy for his movies typically that's
0: right, and yeah. but I do hope that he appreciates it more and more and filmmakers like him. so most filmmakers, unlike you know other art forms like theater or something else, they never get to meet their audience in person right. in the same room, and especially if you're making the kind of blockbusters he has. Um, But at a festival, they get to do that, right? You actually get to feel, and he sat and watched the film and can feel the audience response. I think there's nothing like that for an artist. So I, I hope that it encourages him and others like him to do
1: more of it. All right. So what's going to be the big takeaway from this year's TIFF? What am I going to come back telling people in LA about? the films are still what matters
0: most you know uh, we have a lot of stars every year at the festival we have a lot of red carpets but we've seen from just the the interest ticket sales are at or even a little bit ahead of what they were last year so the possibility that you're not going to be able to see as many stars has not affected people's interest in the movies we're opening with the new hayao miyazaki film the boy and the heron um, so there's no big Hollywood talent in that. And, right. Um,
1: but he's a legend.
0: Everybody wants to see the new Miyazaki. Yeah. So the movies matter most.
1: And um, that's, that's a great thing to know. And maybe the city will be more pleasant without the awful Hollywood people. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, man. <laughs> <laughs> no comment? All right. We will, end, we will end on that. Uh, thank you, Cameron. Appreciate the time. Thank you, man. All right. We're back with the call sheet. My daily prediction. Craig, you following the latest in the saga of Warner Brothers Discovery CEO David Zasloff? Yeah, I have to ask, has David Zasloff been your villain of the year? I know last year it was Adam Aaron. Was it Zasloff the year before that or no? Two years ago was Adam Aaron, the CEO of AMC. Last year it was Gunnar Wiedenfels, the CFO of Warner Brothers Discovery, Zasloff's CFO because of all the cost cutting and killing all the projects. And he is kind of the face man for all of the cuts that have been going on at Warner Discovery. And this week we had Gunnar out there giving another presentation where he said that the company is going to take a hit of about $300 to $500 million, predominantly due to the impact of the strikes. The goal of the company right now is also just to reduce their debt. I mean, that's the big goal. How does that compare to other companies? Well, we haven't heard yet. The These are revised projections because they said they predicted early on that the strike would be done in September. Now they cannot reveal. They don't know when the strike is going to be over. So they're predicting a drop in their earnings forecast for the year. However, free cash flow. This other metric, which does benefit from the strike, meaning the company doesn't have to pay for content that's not being made, that metric, is going through the roof. They say now that they're going to have $5 billion in free cash flow, which is a a metric used to kind of discern the financial health of a company. And Zasloff loves it for another reason, because last March, his compensation package was changed. It used to be based on the stock price of the company, which has been in the toilet. Now it's based on You guessed it, free cash flow. So at the end of this year, after six months of striking, David Zasloff is going to get an enormous bonus and everybody will freak out. That is my prediction, that David Zasloff is setting himself up (laughs) for an enormous bonus this year, despite the strikes, despite the fact that the stock price is at around $11, less than half of when he took over the company a year and a half ago. Yeah, but this is so dumb because they're over-delivering, but on a technicality, this isn't real. <laughs> Get in line. The proletariat is in line for an uprising, and it's going to come. They, they don't have to reveal his salary until March, I believe, and the strike will probably be settled by then, we hope, and it's just going to cause everyone to go completely nuts. Now, obviously, this is a short-term benefit, and I don't want to say that Zaslav is doing this on purpose. I actually don't think he's prolonging the strike in order to pad his own pocket. But it's a happy side effect of this that the free cash flow is is uh, really increasing while the rest of the company is burning to the ground. And yeah, that's not going to go over well when it happens. Is this something most CEOs do? Was this premeditated by Zaslav knowing that a potential strike was coming? Why is his bonus I don't based off so. free cash flow and not the stock? I think it's premeditated based on the fact that the stock has not been doing well. And they saw that there are factors that they believe are outside his control that are causing the stock to go down. So they switched the metrics that they believe will help ultimately the company and its long-term health. And that's in their right. The shareholders can object if they like. There hasn't been any change there. The shareholders actually have expressed some alarm at his salary, but that's only an advisory vote. (laughs) The board can do whatever it wants. And the board is controlled by John Malone, who's been David Zaslav's patron for many years. And yeah, that's where we are. Certainly not a great look. The latest in a long line of bad looks for him. All right, that's the show for today. I want to thank my guest, Cameron Bailey, producer Craig Horlbeck, our editor, Jesse Lopez. And I want to thank you. We'll see you next week.